Welcome to the App Designer Podcast. In this episode... The humanitarian sector is definitely the area that I find the most rewarding to work in. This is good, but like, can you make it pop more? Things that we all take for granted, they're not easily or they're not guaranteed to be universally understood. Welcome to the first episode of our podcast. Today our guest is Kiran Duffy, an independent designer working with Sonder Design Collective on applications for the humanitarian sector. Happy to have you here today. Thanks for having me. You have a Bachelor of Arts in Music and French, and you're a designer. So how did your story with design start? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. I think when I finished school, um, had never heard of design or anything like that. So I did what most people in Ireland were recommended to do when I didn't know what they wanted to be, uh, which was to go to college and do something that you're interested in. So I studied music and French and I was always kind of somebody interested in websites and technology. Um, and even in music, I kind of gravitated towards the music technology aspects of the course. Um, and then after I graduated, I lived in France for a year where I was teaching English and I moved to Japan for a few years again, where I was teaching music and English in, in high schools. But all the time in the background, I was like researching, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do when I inevitably have to leave Japan? Um, and I kind of just stumbled across design online, to be honest with you. Uh, I discovered this, this, there's a whole world of people whose job it is to experiment with technology and experiment with um, visual design to communicate uh, how things should work. And I yeah, kind of navigated my way into it um, through Googling and I found a master's program in uh, Copenhagen in the uh, Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, which is like a year long, very, very intense program uh, to um, yeah, train people from all kinds of different disciplines in design. Um, and what's, what's really nice about it is that it kind of gives you a taster of many different parts uh, of the spectrum of design. So we did a lot of physical prototyping, physical computing, working with Arduino and those kind of things. Also learning the, the fundamentals of um, user interface design. Um, you know, every, every, they introduce you to all these different hard skills. And then across the board, they're always training you in the soft skills of design. So talking to people, kind of validating your idea, iterating it based on people's feedback. Um, so yeah, it, it's been a kind of an unusual path into design, but I think I'm kind of surprised by how things from my experience teaching English or even my experience uh, being a trained classical piano player and a jazz musician uh, and how that kind of feeds into my work as a, as a designer. I was going to ask you about this, how those previous experiences affected your design work. Because, yeah. When you play yeah. piano, it means that you're creative and you appreciate art, so design is art. Yeah, ex exactly. I mean, it, design is, is a lot like art, but we kind of 
are always going to the audience or going to the, the to the user and checking is this what you would expect i think in in music you know a lot of the same we use a lot of the same words that we use in in design so you have like rhythm and even in uh, uh, user interface design you have like the rhythm of a screen how dense is the information on the screen um, and you have like a harmonious design and you have harmony in in music um, so a lot of these concepts are uh, they transfer uh, conceptually between the two the disciplines which I think is interesting also I think what I was teaching, you know, your your job is basically to communicate to a classroom something like how do you give somebody directions? And a lot of my work as a designer is uh, communicating to different stakeholders why we've taken a certain approach or why this design um, makes sense based on the people that were that we've met. Um, and so I think some of those presentation skills or communication skills have definitely uh, assisted me in my in my career. Communication skills are extremely important. Like last week, I read a report that says that communication skills will be even more important in the future because you know technology yeah. is changing and yeah, we just have to communicate all the time. Exactly. So yeah. Was there something that surprised you about being a designer when you started? Um, I think particularly when it comes to user interface design, my initial thought was that it was the arty kids in school who would become or who could become designers. And I'm terrible at drawing and terrible at sketching. And in design school, you're kind of forced to sketch and externalize and visualize your ideas. Um, and it sort of pushes you into this track that anybody can be a, a visual thinker, even if you're not the, the RT kid in school. So I think that was the, uh, the, the kind of surprising thing for me when I was, yeah, in, in college was that it's not necessarily an artistic career. It's creative, but you don't have to be, uh, the greatest artist in the world in order to be able to create a, a, a user interface that's clear and easy to understand and has no ambiguity. Yeah, like I think that's one of the things that people misunderstand about design, that it's not creating yeah, creating art, art graphics, etc., but designing, uh, designing concepts. Exactly. I, I, I think I, I often oversimplify the job to other people when I say I just make what people tell me to create and I get it wrong the first six or seven times and that's kind of the, the point is to create something and then people can other people people who are experts in whatever field it might be if you're creating something for the medical sector then you have like doctors and nurses and and uh, carers telling you how to make it better and I just listen to them and, and kind of improve it. And then at the end, you have something that people think is is pretty good. But uh, the way to get there is by listening to what experts in the, in other fields tell you how, uh, how it should be. You've worked in design of financial apps before, and mm. now you're in the humanitarian sector. And you've been in the humanitarian se sector before. So mm -hmm. this is probably your domain. Can you tell more about that? <laughs> yeah, sure. I think um, 
the humanitarian sector is definitely the area that I find the most rewarding to work in. I think it's also an area that design is less often applied in. Um, I came to working in the humanitarian sector first um, after or towards the end of my um, time studying in, in Copenhagen. Um, so with a, one of the guys in my class, he, his final project was around communicating information to refugees. Uh, and this was back in 2015 when um, a, lot of, a lot of people were entering Europe from the Middle East and North Africa um and you know the eu was calling it a crisis um and there were hundreds and thousands of people arriving in central train stations around europe every day um so when we graduated we we kind of got together with um somebody else that was that was uh, in our network and formed a startup called refugee text and the idea was fairly simple, you would say. It was basically a, a chatbot for refugees where they could get free and verified information uh, on the immigration uh, policies in different countries, in Germany, Denmark, and Sweden. Yeah, so because what we... Simple but powerful. Yeah, exactly. I think what we saw in different train stations that we visited around uh, around Europe was that there was so much kind of rumor, so many uh, pieces of information that were being shared on WhatsApp and on Facebook that might have been true or might have been wildly false. And people were spending their life savings taking a train to Sweden because somebody sent a text message to say all refugees are being uh, welcomed in Sweden at the moment or people from this particular part of, of Syria can now get access to Finland and then they, they show up. And of course, the reality is a lot more nuanced than, than that simple message. So we tried to create a system that uh, would communicate in simple terms what the actual facts were and will give um, organizations who were in charge of setting these rules um, a channel for people to easily access that information. So that was... Um, what we worked on for about 18, 24 months of our lives. And we collaborated with the UN and the Danish Refugee Council and many different organizations um, in kind of relaying the right information. Uh, it was never going to be an, a startup that we were going to become super rich off, <laughs> but it definitely set all of our careers on a certain path towards uh, applying design in uh, domains that are less often focused on, I would say. How many people were in the start that startup? There was three of us. So there was me, uh, Corde, whose final project it was, um, in from my class in CID, and then Caroline, who uh, was working at CID at the time, and then joined our startup to kind of give it a um, yeah boost from the service design um, perspective. But you, yeah, you've worked with the UN, so. That was, that was the first one for uh, the first project. Yeah, first time to try to um, work with the UN. We spent months and months just trying to find the right person to to talk to at the UN. Um, yeah, and I, I think that was part of of what our jobs became was we had this kind of chatbot designed, and then 
our job for about four months was just to knock on doors and send emails and call people to try to find a partner to help um, get this idea at, at the scale that it needs to be because three random people sitting in Copenhagen don't have the resources or the, the network or the channels to, to scale that idea. But if you can somehow convince organizations like the UN that this is a cheaper way to communicate with uh, people who are coming to Europe than face-to-face -face communication, than paper uh, printing um, channels, all those kind of things. Uh, you know, it's not going to replace it, but it can supplement it and reduce those costs. Um, then it becomes a powerful tool. I, I think it took us a couple of months to shift our messaging from we started by, you know, it was our startup and we loved the idea. We started by telling people what a great idea it was. And after talking to different organizations, then we completely shifted to talking about this is how much money you can save by using a chatbot over Facebook and SMS to communicate with people instead of how you're currently doing it. And that's a much more potent message for organizations than what a cool idea it is. I can imagine. <laughs> After all, it all comes back to money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges when designing the humanitarian sector? Because I can imagine that it depends on the country and the situation and the project, obviously. Yeah. But, for example, in the current project. Um, so the current project I'm working on is an accountability mechanism in the humanitarian sector. So accountability is this like big topic in the humanitarian world, which basically... Uh, boils down to ensuring that the organizations that are providing services are held accountable uh, to the communities and to the people who are using those services. Because in the humanitarian sector, the people using those services don't necessarily pay for those services. So um, that's a platform that we're creating called Loop, ourloop.io. And um, yeah, we've been researching it and prototyping it with communities in Iraq, in Zambia, in the Philippines, in Somalia for the past 24 months. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges that we encounter in the humanitarian sector, as opposed to in the traditional private sector, is doing usability testing, doing user research. When you're designing you know, the next app that's going to get Coca-Cola delivered to your front door, it's very easy to go and find people to test it with, give them 50 euro and get them to try out some prototypes and, and give you some feedback. When you're trying to test a prototype of a way for somebody to file a complaint on something quite traumatic that has happened to them, and that person might be quite vulnerable It's not really appropriate to use the traditional user research methods to go out with a clipboard and ask some questions and give a prototype. So we try at Sonder Collective anyway to uh, ensure that any usability testing that we're doing actually provides some kind of value for the participant. So this means if you're prototyping a complaint mechanism, that if you file a complaint in the course of the testing, that that complaint is somehow uh, transferred to the authority that it, that it should be. Mm -hmm. um, so that could mean that we physically print out things that people have said 
and put it on the desk of of different uh, organizations that are that are working in a certain country. It could mean that we show or share an anonymized database of of feedback that's come through prototypes with um, organizations that are working in different areas. Um, but it, the challenge is ensuring that it's an ethical way to conduct usability testing and that we're not just extracting feedback from people to enrich or to improve our platform, that it's also providing value for them. Oh. <laughs> I can imagine that it's a lot of work. So you it, have people... Very tricky. <laughs> you have people on site there that are doing this or... It's a combination. So uh, we've sometimes traveled in 2020, 2019. It was a little bit easier to travel, obviously, before COVID. So we yeah. uh, were traveling to Iraq a few times per year and working there with some some local designers um, um, doing usability testing and user research. Now in Zambia, the Philippines and Somalia, we're working with uh, design teams who are based there. Um, which also adds a, a lot of richness to our um, design process and having them go out and uh, test prototypes with, with different people. Awesome. So you work with different cultures and different kinds of people all the time? Yes, very different people, very different cultures, very different disciplines. Sometimes it's researchers, sometimes it's uh, product designers, sometimes it's DevOps engineers. It really... Uh, it changes a lot. <laughs> and yeah, in some of those countries, I can imagine that yeah, it can be harder with technology or with mm -hmm. the resources. So, how do how do you apply design and technology in low resource settings in a low resource <laughs> environment? Yeah, it's um, it's it's one of those. Um, Things like when you're in, in school and you're you're designing, you're thinking about how you're going to make the coolest app with all these great animations and transitions and uh, fancy things in there. And now in my career, the majority of the stuff that I do is designed for old Android phones, making sure that it's performant on 2G connections or less. So that kind of removes and simplifies the, the options in some ways. Um, it means being really particular about the implementation of design, uh, that things are highly accessible uh, and things are implemented in a way that makes them load quickly on, uh, yeah, like I said, old phones and, and, and connections that have a, have a low bandwidth. Um, so I think as a designer, it has pushed me more into becoming knowledgeable in the material of design and the material of how design is implemented, which is in like exactly how it's coded and exactly how it's developed. That's also a challenge for, for the development team. Yeah, definitely. I think <laughs> most of the time they work on faster networks, faster everything, new devices. They want to speed it up and here, yeah, work with other equipment, try to do it work. Yeah, try to make it work as good as possible. Exactly. I mean, it, the, the one good thing is that it gives a use for all of the old uh, Android phones and tablets that we've all had piling up in our apartments over the years that now that they're the devices that we're kind of previewing designs on, previewing implementations on. Um, Do you encounter problems with working with software development teams? 
Or what kind of problems do you counter? Because I'm sure that there are some problems. Yeah. <laughs> I think in my experience, design, well, even design hasn't all been done under one roof. We're collaborating across countries, across cultures. That's only in the design. And then when you introduce the uh, developers into the equation, then you've got people who could be sitting uh, in different regions, definitely in different rooms. So a lot of the challenges revolve around communication, ensuring that what was designed is communicated to the development team, what the intention is. Um, I think what I've, what I've experienced in the past year is that designing static screens gets you maybe 30, 40% of the way there. It has to be prototyped at a, at a fidelity that allows us to get proper feedback on how things are actually going to work. Even the most simple things like a location picker or a um, entering your email address or your phone number, this becomes super challenging when you want to make it high performant, easy for somebody of low literacy to understand easy for somebody with an unstable internet connection to use. Um, and you only achieve something that um, meets those needs by designing and prototyping it at a high fidelity and then communicating with that prototype um, to the developers who are eventually going to turn it from, from pixels into code. Did you have any funny stories when it came to the development? <laughs> <laughs> Um, funny stories related to development. I'm not sure if, uh, sure anything that's super funny. I think I've had a client, uh, many years ago who wanted animations. I think they had somehow read some medium blog about how animations makes your product engaging. This wasn't in the humanitarian sector. This was in the, in the private sector, in the shopping banking sector. Um, and, you know, animations are not the most usable thing in the world. They can, uh, if not done right, become very, uh, yeah, confusing. So every proposal or every uh, idea that we would show was always like, you know, the classic feedback of this is good, but like, can you make it pop more or can you give it more? Uh, and it was at a really key moment of when you're actually paying for a product in like a, in a e-commerce payment flow. Uh, I think like the, the last version that the client was super excited about, like, there was confetti falling down over the screen and there was things flying around all over the place. I think by the time it actually got to implementation, the development team had kind of encouraged the, 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 the CEO of, of, of that company to, uh, row back a little bit on their ambitions <laughs> for this animation, but yeah, that's the <laughs> strangest experience I've had with uh, animations and, and, and developers. I can imagine that they were scared when they've seen it. <laughs> the developers were certainly uh, yeah, quite scared, a lot of doubts. I think in the end, how they implemented it, at least for the prototype, was like they had an Android APK app and then they had like some crazy Lottie animations just embedded in it, not triggered by a button. Um, but that, of course, when it came to actually implementing that, that was all scoped out, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> Back to design. So mm. 
Uh, how does your work during projects look like? So are you free to do anything when it comes to the design or do you have to follow some processes, guidelines from the product owners? It can depend a lot. So in your introduction, you said I'm a designer with Sunder Collective, which is true. And my, I have two kind of main projects. One is as a kind of, well, yeah, product manager with Loop, where I'm managing design teams and making sure that we're um, designing a product that's accessible for um, recipients of aid and organizations around the world. The other hat that I wear is with OpenMRS, which is an open sourced uh, medical records software where I'm the UX design lead. Where there I'm a bit more hands-on uh, in creating the, um, the screens and the prototypes that are going to be implemented. And in that role, I work with Grace, an excellent product manager for OpenMRS, um, where there there's a lot more specification on like what the product needs to be able to do, what a clinician needs to be able to do at certain moments of, of certain flows, how they need to be able to prescribe different medications, different doses, dosages, all these kind of things. So it's, they're quite different, um, domains. One is kind of highly specified and one is a lot more explorative where we need to figure out what should, what should exist, what should we create. Um, I get the chance in both to be a, bit hands-on with design, with design. I think I wouldn't be able to lead product teams without being hands-on with the design to a certain degree. Otherwise, I, I personally feel that I would lose um, connection with kind of industry standards and, and best practices, um, which for me isn't so much of an option. Where do you learn those industry standards and best practices? Because everybody learns from a different source. Like for me, yeah. the source is LinkedIn. <laughs> like yeah. learn more there and then on any other blog. <laughs> but I, I was just saying to somebody the other day how it seems like the majority of what I know about designing digital products is from using digital products. Like I'm always when I'm using something, I might be taking screenshots or I might be, yeah, just dropping ideas into into a Notion file of like, oh, this is a pattern of how they solve this thing, mm -hmm. and. 95% of what I'm doing is just copying patterns that I've seen in other products and applying it in the, uh, the product that I'm currently working on. So that's a lot of where I, where I learn best practices, obviously the documentation for different design systems, like the, um, the material design guidelines, great, the Apple human interface design guidelines, Salesforce have some really great stuff with Lightning, getting familiar with Carbon Design System from IBM. These are all kind of really great documented resources of accessible design, um, good ways to handle complex things like um, creating rules, programmatic, programmatic rules in a visual way. Um, these are all kind of, there's ideas there in those design systems on how to handle that. And you can kind of pick and choose and, and, and change and apply those um, patterns as, as needed in different projects. Yeah. Like, I think it's always nice to follow the best when it comes to the design. Because Apple has been, yeah, they were the standard for years. The same was with Airbnb. Like yeah. Airbnb, they created the main landing page, the start page, and there was nothing really to improve exactly and yeah you can see more and more companies going the same way 
Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot that we can borrow or steal from uh, those kinds of organizations. I think some of some of it is about knowing, is this the right context to, to use that pattern? And particularly in some of the work that, that I've done, where it's like the audience that we're trying to uh, design with is somebody who's using a computer or a tablet for the first time or somebody who the first time they use an electronic medical record system uh, is going to be a week after they first use a tablet. And in that context, things like hamburger menu or a search icon, things that we all take for granted, they're not easily or they're not guaranteed to be universally understood. Um, so there you have to kind of take the Airbnb inspiration and then tweak it and, and kind of adjust it for those contexts. And how do you test what works well? Is it with A-B testing or? Yeah, A-B testing is one of those things that we all learn about in school. And I, I personally have never worked at an organization that has the resources to do A-B testing. I've even heard about that in reality, it's A-B-C-D-E testing. For me, it's a lot more uh, qualitative. We have kind of the prototype. We have our kind of hypothesis of what it is that we're testing. And then we're getting feedback on that particular variation of the design. Maybe if time and resources allow, we'll, we'll test two at the same time, but only with five, eight people. So it's not really quantifiable. It's more kind of sense-making and leading you in a direction based on what you learn from a handful of, of testers. Okay. Those were the main, yeah, all the of the main questions that I had. But, all right, cool. <laughs> uh, is there anything that you want to say for people who want to get into design? Because there are, I know that there are lots of graphics graphic designers that want to get into yeah. UX and UI. And yeah, any advice from someone experienced? <laughs> I think. Um... What I learned at CID was the soft skills of design, which is the harder thing to learn. And that is the mindset of just visualizing your idea or any anybody's idea. It doesn't have to be perfect and testing that and getting feedback on that. The hard skills of using Figma or using Sketch or whatever the latest tool that, that uh, is, is coming out is, that's the easy part. And there's so many amazing resources online to learn that stuff. But I would say spend the, the time on learning the design mind, the designer's mindset and the design process and processes. It's not a one size fits all process, but it's this mindset of building it, testing it and repeating that process until you have a version that's, that's good enough to implement. Yeah, all, all the other stuff around how you execute your idea, that's stuff that can be very easily learned through YouTube tutorials, any amount of Udemy uh, tutorials, but the soft skills of talking to somebody, understanding what it is that they're saying they need and kind of mixing that with your own idea of how you can meet that need. That's the part that is more challenging to learn and that I would recommend people invest the time to to try out and to read about and and to basically just give it give it a go. I think it's not a it's 
I think design is best learned through practice. It's not something that you want to read about. It's not something that you want to watch endless tutorials on. Um, but just really talk to people, understand what it is that, how they experience a problem, how they characterize a problem, and then try out different ways to solve that problem. You can learn theory, but at one point you have to get your hands dirty to learn more. Exactly. And ideally with design as early as possible. Yeah. So do you agree with the idea build fast and fail fast? Not entirely. No. Because that works well, again, for the app where you want to deliver Coca-Cola to your front door. But when you want to build a, um, a system that allows a doctor to prescribe um, blood pressure medication, mm -hmm. there's no room for fail fast there. When you want to build a, a system for somebody to um, file a complaint on violence that they're experiencing, there's no room for kind of getting it wrong there. So I think build fast, test often, but you need to be very confident in what you're implementing in, in many different scenarios. I, build fast, fail fast, sounds great, looks great on a slide, but doesn't always work. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners? Um, anything else to share? No, I just think um, I would encourage everybody to start designing, even if you don't currently call yourself a designer. Just start talking to people, start trying to understand what they need, create ideas, find people to help you improve those ideas, then call yourself a designer. Awesome. Where can people connect with you online? I think the best way is on my website, duff.work. D-U-F-F dot work. And from there, you'll see some of the projects that I've worked on, my Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, all those kind of things. Awesome. That was a great conversation, Kiran. Thank yeah, you. thanks very much. I enjoyed it. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Elite Crew, the software house that helps designers shape the world. If you need help with your project or want to consult technical matters, just drop us a message at EliteCrew.io. We'll be happy to help.